Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, September 12th at 10.15 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And this week, we welcome Tammy Luby from CNN, who will be joining us when she gets down here from her home base in New York. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, to the news. We are taping this before the Democratic debate, but even without that, there is a lot going on. First up, the new numbers from the Census Bureau on the number of people without health insurance. I will point out that we get various counts of how many people do and don't have insurance, including from other federal government agencies, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But the numbers from the annual current population survey done by the Census Bureau are the ones most people use when they talk about the uninsured. And this year, for the first time since the Affordable Care Act took full effect, the numbers went up. Uh, Who's got the actual numbers in front of them? I'm looking around. I have the numbers. (laughs) How much did it go up? Uh, Well, the rate went up by about half a percentage point, and there are almost two million more people who are uninsured, which is, you know, quite remarkable because we saw that more people got jobs. There were actually 2.3 million more people working full-time year-round, which helped reduce the poverty rate. But yet, at the same time, private insurance stayed relatively flat. So these people who are getting off of poverty are not getting jobs with health insurance. And that, which is just exactly the opposite of what the administration keeps saying. You know, the best way out of poverty and when they talk about the work requirements for Medicaid is to get a job. But now we're seeing basically full employment and yet fewer people with health insurance. What, what What's up with that? Rebecca, you're down there nodding. Well, I think there's a lot in this report that's interesting. Um, Medicaid fell by 0.7 percent. And so that was that was the program that took the biggest hit, even as Medicare inched up a little bit. Um, this is the first time, as you mentioned, that since the health care law that we've seen this. There was a slight uptick the year before. We should remind people was 2014 was the year the health law took effect. And this was 2018, the statistics we're talking about. That's right. It always, they come out a year and a half after, or they come out a half a year after the end of the year. Continue and then, sorry, I'll add (laughs) something. Right, right. Um, So they had ticked up a little bit, like 400,000 before, but it was statistically insignificant. Um, It is worth noting that we've come a long way. Back in 2010, there were 50 million people who were uninsured. Now we're debating 27.5 million people. Um, And and it was a 16% uninsured rate. So 8.5%, still pretty good. But as Tammy mentioned, it should have been better. It's been getting better and better. And I think that the cross current is that the Trump administration has really been discouraging people in certain ways. There have been um, barriers to enrollment in Medicaid. There have been these work requirements, which um, have may have deterred some people, um, even though only Indiana has uh, work requirements in effect right now. Um, and there have been uh, lots of 
different things in terms of not funding navigators, not funding, not getting the word out, even though that is involving the the uh, marketplace. You know, a lot of people who come in to apply for exchange coverage find out later that they're eligible, eligible for, for Medicaid. Medicaid. So there are a lot of things going on. Um, one thing also that was interesting is that they asked about the uninsured rate um, in 2018, and that was 8.5%. But then they asked, do you have insurance now? And it was higher. So it raises questions about, is this going to get worse? I, I mean, think, when they right. asked questions about, do you have insurance now, more people said they didn't. Right. right. It was 9%, 9.1%. Right. Right. Yeah. So the other thing to point out that's important is 2018, was the, it, the mandate penalty was still in effect. Now, some people could have dropped insurance being mixed up about when that changed. The Congress changed it in the end of 2017, effective the current tax year in 2019. Could any of that been people who had spent a lot of money on insurance if they weren't subsidized because they thought they had to and then mistakenly thought they didn't have to? We don't really know. But 2018, these numbers did drop and the mandate was still in effect. It, we do need to see what happens, and we won't know for another year, right. um, in, 20, in 2019, um, when the mandate penalty did go away. And, of course, there's also the lawsuit pending uh, arising from that. I mean, and we also don't know. We've talked about the job market. Uh, we also just, I mean, affordability, as we've say pretty much every week, is a problem if you are not insured on a job and you do not get fully or highly subsidized, you know, a, a big subsidy on the exchange, and you're just buying it yourself. It's a lot of money. So some of that uptick is probably just an affordability issue. And one other thing that we've seen is that the uninsured rate for Hispanics actually yes. increased a lot from 7.7% to 8.7%. And as we know, the Trump administration has also been targeting immigrants. And it's there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence that even people who are eligible for Medicaid are not enrolling because they're concerned if maybe they have families with mixed status, you know, and as well as there's a lot in the news now with the public charge. Right. And even though the public charge rules that, that would basically count it against you trying to get, you know, permanent status if you've taken Medicaid or other certain kinds of benefits didn't happen until 2019. There's been talk of this yeah. really from the, you know, from 2017, from when Trump first took office. Right. So, so there's you know, a lot of evidence that there's a chilling effect for a lot of people who are not applying for the benefits that they are entitled to. And I think you can see that in the states where things got worse. There were three states where things got better. There were eight states where things got worse. Um, Two of those were Arizona and Texas, which are border states. And you remember the stories from Texas where, you know, Customs was having these checkpoints, checking everybody to see if they were legal. There were anecdotal stories about people on their way to the hospital who were checked. And then, you know, they were allowed to go to the hospital, but federal officials would be there when they arrived, ready to schedule you for deportation hearings. So I think that that's some of the issue. I think in all these stories, though, um, in all these states, the stories may be different. Um, The states where things got worse were Alabama, Arizona, um, Idaho, Michigan, uh, Washington State, um, who am I forgetting? Let's see, uh, Tennessee, Ohio, Texas. So I think that there are a variety of different things going on. Um, maybe in some states, Alabama, maybe um, the economy has improved, but there's a big gap between Medicaid eligibility and qualifying Yet for... they're one of the states that has not expanded Medicaid. Yes, yes. In fact, in the, these eight states, half of them were Medicaid expansion states, half of them were not Medicaid expansion states. And so I think 
the circumstances on the ground may be different, but there are some trends that we have to watch, and the public charge is a big one. Um, and, and that also, I want to back her up also in terms of seeing that with the children's coverage dropping. Um, you know, children's coverage has always been such a bipartisan success story. It's been something that we have seen for 20 years where Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch got together and did this. And of course, there were problems with the reauthorizations in the Bush administration. And also a couple of years ago, there was some partisan fighting. But overall, it's it's been a real success story and has dropped the uninsured rate to below 6%. But we for saw kids. it for kids. Um, but we saw it go up 0.6 percent, um, up to 5.5 percent this time. And you have to think that some of that were, as she said, um, people who were afraid to get coverage for their American-born children because they the may parents have been immigrants. might not have been, yeah, or might have been legal immigrants, but still worried about the whole public charge thing. And the right. decrease also, did come in Medicaid and chips. So, yeah, but there was also a different. There was a change in how they did some of the statistical reporting for kids. So when, there's a drop, mm-hmm. but there's also might be a little bit of measurement art. And this, yeah, this has always been an, an issue. They keep, I mean, they keep trying to improve the survey, which is a good thing. Um, but then except it's, that it makes it very it's hard not to compare. To oranges, right. but it might be like a red delicious versus a, a <laughs> yeah. Granny Smith. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Well, one one more question on this. How's this going to play politically? I mean, we all. I mean, a lot of people seem very surprised. Like I wasn't surprised. I think a lot of us kind of knew that that these numbers were going to go up. We didn't know. We had seen extent. a number of surveys um, that had suggested it. As Julie said, this is the closest thing we have to a gold standard in counting uninsured people. So we didn't know how much it went up. You know, on one hand, 8 to 8.5 doesn't sound like much. But then when you realize, as Tammy pointed out, it's 2 million, two million people, people. It's a lot. So uh, and, uh, and next year with a softening economy mm-hmm. and no mandate and heightened political whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, though, because it seems that the, the politics of healthcare right now are all about cost and very much about people with insurance who still can't afford to get care. I'm just sort of how politically potent is a bigger number of uninsured people. I think we're going to see it tonight in the debate because, you know, it, with the Democrats are constantly hammering the Trump administration for taking away coverage. I mean, their focus a lot is on expanding coverage, and this is reversing. So I'm right, sure tonight but, right. it's going to come up a lot. Yes, but we also seen the Democrats... Just you know, I don't just just you know the circular firing squad of yes. incoherent stuff as they try to explain their health care plans. So I, you know, I think that there's some talking points the Democrats will hit. I mean, who knows? You could depends on what the moderators ask. Yeah. We can't predict. Well, right? no, but I'm thinking in Congress too. I mean, which is also right well, now. But also, we're you get know, you have the, you also have you know the Democrats, those Democrats who were talking about switching the system and not building on Obamacare. Um, are, you know, in some ways fueling the, oh, see, it didn't work. So it, 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 I think many of them really want to have a mixed message. I think many of the people who want to move toward a Medicare for all system also understand that in the short term, you do build off of Obamacare. They're not saying you can scrap it tomorrow, uh, although some say you could scrap it in two years. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's that it's not even that subtle, but that progression gets lost. And in some ways, the sort of the, the, the progressive attempt to sort of move the country on uh, opens things in some ways. You know, the Democrats can say, look, even they think it's terrible. Actually, just the Republicans say even they think it's terrible. Yeah, so. the Republicans love this. You guys keep talking about Medicare for all versus, you know, building on the Affordable Care Act. And instead of talking about what Trump is doing, it, it really plays to the Republicans' advantage. I think um, it's what happens when you get a primary with 20 candidates in it. But if I were a candidate tonight, 
given what's ha- and, and they don't have control what the moderate moderation I would actually really try to talk after the hurricane and what just happened I would try to talk about climate change right well I, I you know I tell I tell young reporters all the time when they go on TV it's like what if I don't know the answer to the question I said just answer a different question that's what they I mean the candidates have a lot of power <laughs> what, to, do you want a single payer plan the earth needs us to act right? <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about public health for a minute um, and e-cigarettes. We talked about this briefly last week in light of the recent spate of vaping-related lung illnesses and deaths. So now the Trump administration is apparently ready to ban flavored vaping products. Um, or is it? What is actually happening here and when? I've seen a lot of, of headlines, screaming headlines, and then you read the actual story and it's like, well, they're going to do it, but they haven't done it yet. I think they're going to act pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, I, I think there is an attempt to crack down on the flavored vapes that are, you know, attracting huge numbers of teens. We will know soon there'll be another survey released, but we know it's, um, was, it, was it one out of five I think high schoolers had vaped in the last 30 days? Right. And they admitted that, so it's right. probably hard. Right. Um, three million kids. Three million kids. So, and it's creeping down to younger kids. It's a middle school problem. Um, the president has a middle schooler. Um, the, and the president, well, I mean, there was a meeting this week with the president and the acting head of the FDA and HHS Secretary Azar, where they apparently have the, the, these new statistics from the, the annual survey that they haven't released to us I yet. I was told we'd see guidance within a couple of weeks. So, so but, I, I but think the guidance actually banning flavored Planning flavors until they prove that, till if and when, which is a very big if, right. they can improve their wonderful for public health. So, you know, they have to prove that they are a good thing uh, to get back on the market. And they're separating out the, the flavored from the the tobacco the, flavored, the tobacco flavored, yeah. something that tastes more like a traditional cigarette versus something that tastes like cotton candy. Um, they're not getting rid of all. Uh, e six. Although some states are talking about well, it, Michigan, Sam- Michigan mm-hmm. banned all flavored vaping. You know, Cal- vaping San Francisco products, is, yeah. is banned all of them flavored and not everything. Which is there's a ballot initiative about that, which Jewel is fighting. Um, I mean, well, they're for the ballot initiative, which undoes the ban. Um, the so, but I think on the vaping, on the kid vaping stuff, you know, I think all of us who were on talking to people yesterday heard that they want to do this pretty fast. Um, I think there were a confluence of things that happened, some not actually. I was just going to say, I mean, they've been talking about this basically all summer um, and they, all spring. They proposed they've it been, last yeah, year. Yeah. So there's, a there's been... It's, I mean, I talked about it with Scott Gottlieb as he was leaving the FDA. Which was, and he's actually been really, like, his Twitter feed as ex-FDA commissioner has been even more aggressive because, you know, there's still, ESICs came onto the scene as, quote, harm reduction, unquote, meaning they were better for you than smoking a traditional cigarette. If you already smoked. If you were an adult smoker, right? That They didn't say they were good. They say it was less harm. There's still a lot we don't know about the science of, you know, what what this stuff does when it gets into your lungs. I always wonder, you know, the studies are sort of short term. You know, do people switch to e-cigs for two weeks or do they switch to e-cigs forever? Do they switch for e-cigs at work and they smoke at home? I don't know. I haven't, you know. But anyway, the whole, the, the initial sort of push for this new product is harm reduction for an already smoking adult. They're not the science is somewhat open on that, so they're that sort of they put that to the side a little bit. But we know what's going on with the. They're not selling cotton candy and apple juice to sixty-year-olds, or not many, <laughs> you know. So, you know, we know we have a lot. We know what's going on there, and we know who it's hitting. And you know, if you talk to any teenager, but we talked about this a year ago. We it's talked about jewel, and yeah, I know. And now exactly. you have deaths from vaping, which I think is. 
moving the needle. And that was my question last week. I mean, we've got we're up to what I think six deaths, but we don't really know. We still don't know. They don't know why. Well, the early evidence, and I really want to stress that you can't figure out a new mysterious disease that's killing people in in a week and a half. The early evidence is that it's not from the legal uh, jewel and jewel like. They're not legal. Semi, <laughs> they're legally sold, but they're it's, it's it's too complicated to explain. Not the things that you can walk into a store and buy that's uh, nicotine containing, like Joel. Um, the early evidence, and, and you know, not everybody tells. Well, you can't interview a dead person, unfortunately, but they don't have all the epidemi- epidemiological data. But it does seem to be more linked to marijuana vaping products, CBD oil in it. Um, an oil that's contained in vitamin E, which is perfectly healthy if you take it as a vitamin, but not if you inhale it. Um, so it does seem to be more of a cannabis, mm-hmm. CBD marijuana thing, and maybe some counterfeit nicotine products, fake jewel. So, but you know, in Washington, never waste a good crisis. So the famous Rahm Emanuel line, <laughs> right? So this is definitely you have something like 450 people hospitalized. You have six deaths. You may have had other deaths and illnesses before that weren't detected. It depends if this is a new contaminant that we don't know yet. Um, so, you know, the president yesterday was talking about people are dying, people are getting sick, so let's ban flavored. <laughs> they're not exactly the same crisis. There are two crises, but, you know, seize the day. Right. <laughs> and right. the Democrats are doing the same thing. The Democrats are running around calling hearings and, um, you know, we have to, maybe maybe it is the eggs. We have to find out. Let's let's call the FDA and make them talk to us about kids and smoke. And, 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 well, yeah. And, and kids, kids and vaping has you know taken off so much. I mean, we don't know what the new de- data show, but we know that last year it went up seventy eight percent in one year, and so that's huge. And obviously, the marketing, as Joanne mentioned, is really directed towards kids. Vaping marijuana is also very much directed towards kids. Because I don't your know parents if you guys can't smell it. <laughs> it's oh, true. I didn't it's know this. True. I don't know. You have you have teenage kids. I do, um, and you know, I don't, I don't know if you've seen this thing called Tokimon. No, I've missed that. One. <laughs> Similar to Pokemon, it's like the marketing that they do around these pot products. So um, yeah, it's pretty obvious. Right, and this is interesting because it also is an area where Melania Trump has come out, and she was there yesterday. So this is something that. They're very concerned about mother of the, a thirteen-year-old. Right, they're very concerned about. The we children. don't want to say imply that he is vaping, but any mother of a thirteen-year-old knows what's going on in middle school. So I would say she's got a thirteen-year-old who goes to school. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I mean, so is, is this going to be her new crusade? Instead well, I mean, we know of being that nice on the internet. We know that she has not engaged in public policy. You know, obviously the way that Hillary Clinton did, but even you know, Lord Bush on literacy. I mean, there um, other first ladies have been more you know, had an issue that's more visible and they're engaged in, and she's pretty, you know, she has her anti-bullying thing. With but and she, but she, to the extent that she does things, they are kid-related. She's gone to some hospitals that treat um, babies who are born to opioid-addicted mothers and some roundtables with the families. She has done the bullying thing, I mean, anti-bullying thing. <laughs> and she's apparently, uh, you know, when the White House says, you know, Melania made me do it, you have to wonder. But, you know, I think we all were told that that's, you know, that she has actually weighed in privately on this and has concerns about it. I mean, we wrote a story at Politico yesterday with um, Melania versus the Vapors mm-hmm. um, talking about her role, but also talking about the politics. Three, three cheers for the headline, which you wrote. I'm not <laughs> usually a great headline writer, but I do admit I said if that was my best of the year. Um, <laughs> I don't even write them some of the time, but Melania versus the Vapors, yes, I actually told my husband about that one. Um, 
the he didn't get it though. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is a different issue. Um, there's also politics. I mean, Dick Durbin. Yes, Dick Durbin said that Ned Sharpless, the acting FDA commissioner, should resign if he didn't take these things off. As the one of the quotes in that story yeah, said, I mean, it, Dick it, Durbin it, has been relentless, and Ned Sharpless has been spineless. <laughs> it <laughs> is worth reminding people that Congress, or the Congress, that. The FDA has had the authority to do this since I got this wrong yesterday. It's 2009. They passed the Congress passed the tobacco bill, giving FDA authority over nicotine over nicotine products. And in Secretary right. and Secretary Azar, in his remarks to the Oval Office yesterday, did note that this took root in the end of the Obama administration. I mean, that is a it's it has exploded in the last two or three years. But it the origins, I mean, go back further than that. Well, the Trump administration, let's remember, also delayed the regulation on e-cigarettes. That's so. right. They, they, yeah, they, the, the, the Obama administration was the first one to give them more time to sort of before they actually actually had to come under the FDA approval umbrella. But when but Scott Gottlieb gave them even more time. Yes, they walked that back. But a judge rolled it back. Right. It wasn't the FDA who rolled it back. Well. And then they moved it back again. Yes, they 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 ha- they were under they ha- they had to. Um, the judge said that the public uh, health groups had to get together and put together a proposal. Then he he agreed to that. But before that, I think FDA had said that they want to change the dates again. So. I mean, Gottlieb it was open to this idea of harm reduction. I don't think he thought it was totally proven. But he's. I mean, if you're a public health official and there's something that is going to make you know, some assistance to smokers who have not been able to or willing to quit, you're going to want it to work. You're going to hope it works. So Scott Gottlieb at the FDA never said, this is the solution, this is the fix. But he did say, you know, it has some promise. We need to look at this. But then, you know, the the balance of harm and good is what you have to weigh. So what seemed, you know, to him a few years ago, the balance might have been more good than bad. And, you know, if you look at his tweets now, I think he's changed his mind. I mean, the kid, he hasn't But there's come out more and, evidence now. There's I more mean, evidence. There's right. more. I mean, the National Academy of Science said the same thing, that, you know, maybe this is going to be a harm reducer, but maybe it's going to cause so much more new harm that it's going to cancel out. what. And the CDC does. has said people should stop vaping. Right. Right. That's new from last week. So. Well, yeah. that's what yeah. happens when 450 people are in the hospital right. and six are dead. Yeah. All right. Well. Let's go back to Congress for a second, because Congress is back from its summer break, um, and they're thinking about doing something on prescription drug prices. Uh, over the summer break, Nancy Pelosi's staff came up with a proposal I imagine they hope will unite the warring liberal and moderate factions of the Democratic Party. Uh, will it? And if so, what are the odds for Republican buy-in on any of this stuff? <laughs> Rebecca, slim. this is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, the big picture is that uh, it's always been a challenge to get prescription drug legislation, and it it's even it's continuing to be hard, even though the president has this desire to do it and Nancy Pelosi has this desire to do it. But politically, I don't think Democrats really have an incentive to give the president a win on this. Um, there are many, many threads of this. Uh, the Trump has put Trump administration has put forward a blueprint of different rules that they wanted to do. Most of those are stalled. The administration either gave up on them or one of them, the one about television ads and having list prices in there was stopped by the courts. Um, and so Congress has stepped in. They've done a little bit. There, there are some modest bills that still 
have a chance to go forward. The like House stopping passed, the worst ways of brand name drugs, g- delaying generics. Exactly right. That's called the CREATES Act. Yes. So that's passed and the House. It's bipartisan, and everyone's liked it for a couple of years now, and it still hasn't. Been I passed. would say a couple yes. of years. It goes back to like the late 1990s. At least some of the things in it go back to the late 1990s. It does. Um, a testament to the to the lobbying power of the what drug a, industry. Once the world doesn't have glaciers anymore, are we going to still have glacially sped <laughs> yeah. legislation? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so yes, I mean, it is it is very difficult, um, you know, even though the House has passed the CREATES bill and two other bills, one that deals with pay-for-delay settlements um, and another one that deals with the exclusivity period for generic companies. You know, those were put into the Senate health bill. So both sides have kind of said this is something we should do. Um, those are the ones that maybe sort of have a chance, but not really, as you guys are saying. Um, but the big, the big ones that we've been talking about, Medicare negotiation, that's really, I think, more of a political issue. That's something. That's a statement that's being put forward to say we really want to be aggressive on this issue. Um, the House Republicans and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are not going to go along Although with I negotiating. Love, I can't remember whose story I read this in this week, but someone, apparently Senator Grassley, the Finance Committee Chairman, yeah. is trying to triangulate off of the possibility of Speaker Pelosi doing a deal with Trump to convince reluctant Republicans in the Senate to support his more moderate bipartisan bill. He did with with Senator Wyden. So, you know, it's like if you can either support this, which isn't you know quite as far or Trump's going to get together with Pelosi and you're going to be really sorry. Yeah. And he sent out an email on that yesterday saying, you know, because a lot of Grassley did and a lot of Republicans did not support his bill because they it contained things that he he didn't that they didn't like like. or that the drug industry doesn't like. Right. And so now Grassley's saying, well, you better back my bill because otherwise you've got drug negotiations, you know, on 250 drugs coming your way. And this is something similar to what the president has somewhat similar to what the president has uh, also proposed. So, you know, Grassley is saying my bill is far more moderate. But and we also those you know, words. Yeah, but we probably wouldn't have had this conversation at all if Grassley was not Senate Finance Committee chairman, uh, because among the you know, sort of influential senior senators, he's probably the most critical of pharma. Yeah. And he, that you goes know, back to the right, days. right, and and he he is quite skeptical of pharma. He is quite worried about drug prices. He gets very grumpy about pharma, um, and and there is this sort of senior statesman voice in the Senate that creates some bipartisan space because he's, you know, I don't know, he ended up not getting any votes from fellow Republicans, right, on the committee? No, no he did. Some of them um, agreed to vote for it now. But hold their noses. Exactly, okay. right. right. It, it barely and try to got take out it apart on the Senate floor, right. which right. it's not coming to unless right. there's, unless McConnell feels better about having more Republicans support it. Right, right. exactly. Right. And remember that both bills actually contain something that would be universally very popular, which is an out-of-pocket cap on yes. Medicare. So, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize that the Affordable Care Act actually limits uh, the costs, the annual costs for uh, actually people in employer plans and people in the individual market. But Medicare actually does not have a cap, and so this. Well, is they why have a cap. The problem with the, the Medicare cap is that it's five. Per, is it that when you get to the catastrophic threshold, it pays ninety-five percent? Right. And when they passed it in two thousand three. 
everybody not many assumed, people. Well, no, but also people figured that five percent wouldn't be that much money. But now we have all these two million dollar drugs. Exactly, <laughs> and five percent it can suddenly turn into a whole lot. And of money. at that time, when drugs weren't that expensive, there weren't as many people even hitting catastrophic. That's right. right. Exactly. I think we only have one two million drug, but by in a few weeks, I'm sure we'll have. But one. but the point the point <laughs> being though that five percent of a whole lot more money. We have that are hundreds of thousands yeah, of dollars. Is that a whole we lot do more have. money. Yeah. yeah. Although that's the part D. We don't have, the, 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 a lot of these drugs are more, the most expensive drugs are covered differently, not necessarily better. Well, but there's no, no cap on them either. No, there's a different, right. <laughs> In doctor's office. Right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless you unless you have supplemental insurance, there's no, there's no actual Medicare cap on them. Right. Well, let me just say, Tammy's right in that it's not only something that the American people like, but People in Congress like this. I mean, the House Energy and Commerce and the House Ways and Means Committee got together and said, hey, we should restructure Part D and we should ask insurers to do more. We should ask drug makers to do more. We should cap seniors' costs and we should take some of the burden off the taxpayer. They agreed on that. Then the Senate committee agreed on that. So really, it's a leadership issue about what they want to do about this. I don't think they're going to move forward. <laughs> All right. Well, the the other big issue Congress has been promising to do this fall, um, the, the one that we thought might be easier than drug prices, well, is legislation is. to rein in <laughs> surprise medical bills, the bills that patients get because they inadvertently got care from an out-of-network provider. This is a another bipartisan issue. Fixing it is supported by President Trump. He did a big event at the White House. Um, but shout out here to my uh, KHN colleagues, Rachel Bluth and Emory Hudeman. It turns out that there's a big chunk of resistance coming from some of the doctor practices that have been bought by private equity firms whose entire business model is billing at extravagant prices so the excess can be returned to shareholders. Um, what are the odds that we actually get a solution to this before the end of the session? The odds are lower than they were before the August recess. They're not zero. Before the uh, in July, there was progress. There was momentum. I mean, we, keep in mind this is the easiest thing on Congress's <laughs> health care agenda, right? But in health you know, nothing is easy, uh, or we, you know, we wouldn't be here every week. Um, so th- the the issue here is that every pretty much everybody wants to do something about surprise bills, but nobody wants to be the person that pays for it, um, particularly the equity firms. Um, that so, was a great story, right. by the way. Yeah, it, was it was a very good story. So, I mean, there's a reason these doctors are charging more money. It's because they can. So, so changing that is is hard. So, it's are they going to get less money? Or, you know, who's going to pay? You know, what, everybody wants to protect the patient. So, the short answer is, it had more yes. oomph in July. Things. It's really easy to pick things apart in August, and millions of dollars were spent picking this one apart. Every every time you turn on a cable news station, you get two or three ads. Dark for, money, you know, mm-hmm. right? And then they come back. There isn't a lot of momentum. I don't think any of us would say it's impossible that it doesn't get wrapped into some kind of end of the year or something or other bill. It's weakened. But I don't think it's dead. It's it's damaged. Right. Well, it's significantly damaged. While this is something that has bipartisan support, this is falling into the classic trap of a fight among the industry. And so I did that story in May. And in (laughs) and in this case, you know, the the doc, the doctors and hospitals have a lot of power because doctors and hospitals are in every congressional district. Insurers are not. They're major employers. They're major funders of the community, and they have a big voice. And they're also, you know, it's where you have your baby, and it's, you know, they took care of grandma. It's just a different – people like their hospitals in a way they don't like their insurers. Um, So it's a different dynamic in the community. Mm -hmm. 
I think so, too. I mean, I think the Kaiser Family Foundation poll this morning said that 78% of patients really want to see this. But I think when you're going up against doctors and hospitals and venture capitalists, I think it's a really hard (laughs) thing. It's so America. Although (laughs) one thing that really surprised me in that poll was that although most people want Congress to do something, you know, nearly 8 in 10, as you said, the support drops to 57% after hearing that doctors and hospitals would be paid less. And I don't understand this because... You know, everyone is saying that they want to reduce costs and they want to reduce their costs. They want, you know, everyone's complaining about prices. So why are so many people concerned all of a sudden when they find out that doctors and hospitals, you know, might be paid less? And that's a problem. I wonder if it goes to that rationing argument that Republicans always put out that, oh, if they're paid less, then they're going to be less willing to take care of you and your health care might suffer. Well, maybe they think if the doctors paid less, they're going to pay more. That's true, too. Which, of course, is the exact problem that we're trying to solve. (laughs) Exactly. We will come back to this later. Um, That is the news for this week. It is now time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Joanne, why don't you start this week? There's a piece in the New York Times called Nursing Homes are a Breeding Ground for a Fatal Fungus by Mac. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the last name right, but Matt Richtel and Andrew Jacobs. And there's a, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right either, but there's a fungus called Candida auris, auris um, which is, it kills half the people in 90 days. It's, it's uh, drug resistant. And it is spreading in nursing homes, particularly nursing homes where there's a lot of people on ventilators. Uh, this story documents how poorly uh, it's hard to control in the best of circumstances. And a lot of these nursing homes are just not even really trying. And because it's spreading in the nursing homes, it spreads to doctors and visitors and everybody who comes in and out of the nursing homes and gets into regular hospitals in the community. It is not a good thing. Yikes. Tammy. Well, the... the article I chose is in the New York Times. It was by Sidney Ember, and it's titled, Bernie Sanders Went to Canada and a Dream of Medicare for All Flourished. But what I actually really liked in this story was that it talked a lot about how, what were the roots of Sanders's, you know, fervent interest in Medicare for All and in expanding uh, coverage. And it's because his mother actually had died while he was in college and she was very sick. And unlike other candidates, you know, we, we have uh, Warren and Harris and Biden all talking about the health care issues in their families and why that's spurring them. But Sanders never mentions this. And even in this story, he didn't want to talk about it. But the reporter did, you know, a lot of reporting and did find that when Sanders was in college, his mother got very sick and his you know, brother and others say that he was extremely devoted to her, went to be with her more than he went to class, went to Brooklyn College so that he could be near her. His brother described it as a wrecked year. And, you know, I found this very interesting as this is this is what's spurring him, even though he doesn't talk about it. He, he prefers to talk about other people's medical problems and, uh, you know, gives other examples. Rebecca. Hmm. So I picked UVA has ruined us. Health system sues thousands of patients, seizing paychecks and putting liens on homes by Jay Hancock and Elizabeth Lucas at Kaiser Health News. This was a great story. This is the kind of story I think we all like to do and want to see more of. This is something where they found a problem. They really shown a spotlight on this. Um, they have anecdote after anecdote of people who have been sued for medical bills, um, The University of Virginia medical system has really low standards for helping people. Uh, To get help, you have to have less than $3,000 in assets, and your income 
um, has to be less than twice the poverty level. And they go after people. They go after people in courts. They, they go after their after, own employees. They went after a hundred of their yeah own employees. There was a story in here of a student who was blocked from enrolling again because he had this medical bill. And how is he going to pay it back if he doesn't get his degree and get a job? And it's, that county uh, that UVA is headquartered in has, uh, I'm not sure if they're the highest last year, but they, the year before, they were the most expensive county to get insurance in the country. And if yes. it, and and among them, for several years, among the highest, and at least one year, they were the highest. There's one dominant health insu- health insurer, and there's one dominant health care system, which is not only a public, it's part of a university, a, you know, a flagship state university. And yeah. Right. And there have been a lot of stories recently on how the for-profit hospitals are doing this. But one thing, and you know, UVA is not alone in the public sector, but it is, you know, quite shocking that you have, you know, public hospitals doing this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Nonprofits well, that have, are taxpayer I mean, funded. And this right. is something that Chuck Grassley and other people on the Hill have paid attention to. I, I imagine they're probably reading this story. I mean, the last big scandal was also a university affiliated hospital, which was Yale, which was like 15 years ago. And it, it, there were similar horrible stories and they sort of cleaned up their act. But the they're doing more community service and more, more free care. Um, but I mean, a nonprofit hospital doesn't mean that it's not making money. Right. It's your tax status. It's not your... Right. But this is a this is a state hospital. This is a... This one's pretty... And yeah. This, yeah. Is, yeah. this and, one checks a lot of boxes. And this is also... I mean, the UVA health system, you know, if you live anywhere in Virginia, which is a much bigger state than people realize. I mean, it, you know, it's like 10 hours from one end to the other, because I did it last year. Um, With a corgi? No. <laughs> I actually was driving to Asheville, North Carolina, which requires you to go diagonally across Virginia. Yes, we um, do that trip, and my kids complain the whole way. But a lot of people go to UVA from other parts of the state, is my point. They travel long distances. And in fact, you can see in the story that UVA was busy suing people who live all over the state. And I know this because Jay Hancock, who wrote the story, sits next to me. And a lot of this stuff isn't online. And he actually got in the car and drove around to all of these courthouses all over Virginia to look up some of these lawsuits. Um, yeah, it's I, I think, you know, this is now the there, there have been several of these. This is sort of the biggest of them, but I'm sure there will be more as we go. All right. Um, I'm going to do mine. My story is by Anna North from Vox. It's called This Life-Threatening Pregnancy Complication is the Next Frontier in the Abortion Debate. It's about how some anti-abortion activists, including some state legislators, are trying to make the case that ectopic pregnancies, where the embryo forms outside the uterus, usually in the woman's fallopian tube, are not a legitimate reason for an abortion. Now, I have been covering abortion since the late 1980s. This has never been an issue before. Ectopic pregnancies are considered medically a life-threatening emergency and basically the reason for the exception to most abortion bans that say except to save the life of the pregnant woman or the mother or whatever you call her in the legislation. That's mostly to cover ectopic pregnancies. Even the Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and yes, that's a thing, says termination is the appropriate treatment for ectopic pregnancy, but there's an increasing push to maybe wait and see if the woman miscarries on her own, which does something happen sometimes, but sometimes something ruptures. Um, or in the case of one Ohio lawmaker, there was a legislative suggestion that pregnancies outside the uterus be somehow transplanted into the uterus where they belong, except that's not something medical science can do, at least not yet. Anyway, it is one more example of how a medical debate is getting further and further afield from actual scientific evidence. We will watch that space.
So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Joanne Kennan. At Luby, and that's L-U-H-B-Y. At Rebecca Adams, DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.